ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. We close out our two-episode tribute to the 2019 TCM Classic Film Festival with another round of amazing exclusive audio. During this episode, you're going to hear me interview Dave Carter, an intro to the 1940 film My Favorite Wife featuring Mario Cantone and Jennifer Grant. Then it's my interview with Diane Baker, followed by the introduction from Dennis Miller and Barbara Rush for the 1950s film When Worlds Collide. I got to talk to Ileana Douglas, which you'll play next, followed by Eddie Muller's intro for 1948's Open Secret. After that, it's my interview with Patty McCormick and the introduction to the 1949 Ida Lupino Noir, Roadhouse, introduced by Sloane DeForest. I then interview Rob Marshall and Ron Perlman, followed by one of the best events to ever take place at TCM, Bill Hader's intro to the 1930s pre-code Mad Love. Literally, I had to end it with that one because it is just perfection. So let's let the audio do the talking. We haven't actually officially met yet. So I know who you are. I'm shocked. Duh. Oh my gosh, people know who I am. It's very weird. How's it going? Oh, it's, it's going. I'm trying not to get, you know, blown into... A, you Oblivion? Know. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm asking everybody, and I'm loving everybody's answer. You know, what's the gateway performer or film that got you into classic cinema? Oh, so easy, Laura. So oh, okay. I was I was in college, and I was taking a film class, and the professor showed us Laura. And I remember just being like, oh my god, I'm mesmerized by this. Just the look of it. I had never really seen a movie like that before. And this is the embarrassing part. I remember seeing the opening credits, and it said Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney. And I watched the movie, and I was like, Dana Andrews, she's so beautiful. And Gene Tierney, wow, such a handsome man. And then I had to learn afterwards that Gene was the lady and Dana was the, the guy. The wonders of unisex naming back in the I day. I know, so it really threw me off. But that was the movie that opened my eyes to a completely new world of film. Well, now that you're on air doing all the TCA, living the dream, as it were, you know, what's it like being in the TCM universe in this time where we're all talking about classic film access and the fact that we need it. I know. Well, just the whole, all of the uh, response to Filmstruck, I think, really blew all of us away. Yeah. And it is sad that Filmstruck's gone, but I think it re-energized the TCM fans for them to show how much the channel means to them and for all of us who work there to get even more excited about how we can reach out to the fans, to the movie industry, to people in power to make sure that TCM has a long and happy life. Well, I have to ask, too, about, you know, working with the script. I love the, like, inner process of, like, recording those intros. Okay. You know, is that something you get to have, like, some say in in terms of what you get to say? Yes. Or is so, it basically, basically, they had a few different writers, you know, writing for my intros. And there was one in particular, her name's Hannah Jack. And she and I just connect. Hello! And her writing, her writing really fits in with my voice 
and whenever I get her scripts, I change things, you know, a little, little bit to make it in my own voice, and I add little factoids that I think are interesting. But it's so funny because a lot of times I'll be reading a script that she sends me, and I'll, I will have taken some notes. That, oh, I want to make sure I add this one little tidbit, and I add it in the script, and then five lines later, she's already put it in, and I didn't know it. We are just so on the same wavelength, so I really have a great time. Um, you know, working with her and getting to collaborate with her. It's a great marriage. Is there a film at the festival that you're planning to make time for no matter how you have to do it? Yes, there's a couple. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. I am the world's biggest Harrison Ford fan, particularly from the early 80s when he was just like off the charts, gorgeous. So I definitely want to see that on the big screen. I'm going to see Magnificent Obsession because Alicia's introducing it. I want to see Rock Hudson on the big screen. Douglas Sirk. I mean, melodrama. And then I just introed last week on the channel A Woman of Affairs. Okay. Greta Garbo and Chuck But I want to see that with a live orchestra. I'm thinking I'm going to try to make time for that on So those are the three. But, but then the interview-wise, the two I'm most excited for that I'm doing are the cast of Nashville and Kurt Russell for Escape from New York. So I've got two. I've got two. You're just near all the, between Goldblum and Kurt Russell, like. I've got all the great guys. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Of course. New York stage actor and stand-up comedian gained critical acclaim with his Tony Award-nominated one-man show, Laugh War. He also starred on Broadway as Stan Vick from the Tony Award-winning uh, Tony Award-winning Assassins by Stephen Soundheim and John Whiteman, and Buzz and Tarek McNally's Tony Award-winning dramatic comedy, Love, Valor, Compassion. You can clap for that. Canton's other Broadway credits include uh, Geiger in the uh, opposite Patrick Stewart, uh, sorry, regular Broadway cast of The Violent Hour, and Ste Stefano in Shakespeare's The Tempest, opposite Patrick Stewart. Everybody's heard of him. Canton's future film work includes Quiz Show, directed by Robert Redford, uh, Sony's animated film Surf's Up, yeah. The Aristocrats, and as Anthony Maritini in Sex in the City. <laughs> City too. Don't forget the sequel. <laughs> uh, he is currently starring in A Ring of My Own, opposite Ralph Macchio at the Abbey Gun Theater, and he's still alive after doing all that. Uh, please welcome Mary Mario.
But anyway, he didn't do it, but he did produce it. And it was, it was, uh, it was um, uh, directed um, by, I'm blanking out, see? I'm, it wasn't Garson, it was Garson Kane. And uh, yes, of course. And um, it's so funny, this movie, and they're both so magnificent. And this is kind of like a mini Cary Grant Film Festival. There's like six film people. So, what is this? Anyway, um... <laughs> Uh, so, fittingly, we have a guest today that I'm going to be have the honor of interviewing, um, Miss Jennifer Grant, who is the American daughter and Diane Cannon's daughter, which is equally as thrilling. And I talked to her on the phone about four days ago, and we spoke for an hour, and then I saw her today, and I think I'm straight now. And, <laughs> When I see through the heterosexual eye when I see a woman like her. And, um, so I'd like to bring her up and we're going to talk for a few minutes. So, ladies and gentlemen, is your relationship with him. You wrote a book called Good Stuff that came out in 2011, correct? I did, yes. And you never really wanted to write a book about him at first. Am I correct, correct about that? Right. It took me years and years to be sort of talked into it. And when you did it, I, I, I read the book, and the boxes of stuff that he saved... Yeah. He, um, your, your stepmother Barbara gave you them, these boxes of things, right? Yes. They were... Um, so my father was raised in the war, and most of his memorabilia actually burned. So he didn't have anything from his childhood. And he saved every, every little scrap of paper I doodled on. Um, he would write on the back of it, you know, the date and where it was done. And as though it was all great art. But there were boxes and boxes of these things, and notes I'd written to him, and notes he'd written to me. And, and he actually took stuff out of the garbage that you crumpled up. Yeah, yeah. Iron them and saved them. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and so he saved everything. Everything, and he made audio tapes as well. That's so, right. You, and you, so you heard yourself as a child. I heard myself as a child and his voice. And it's amazing, especially because sadly he passed, but I get to hear him and hear years of our relationship. Yeah. And. It's a good point. I was reading about how you heard yourself as a kid and how strange that is too. Because I heard myself as a kid once on tape and I was like, I would have smacked me in the face. <laughs> but the, the great thing is that you have these, you have audio. I have audio, audio. I have video, I have Super 8, I have all the photographs. Yeah, he saved, he saved a lot. And the interesting thing too, I found very Admirable, because when you have, when you are a big star, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, it's difficult to have children in this business. And he had you much later. He did well. He did, and he retired when I was born. 
just to be a father. To raise you. Exactly. To raise you. But I think he knew himself very, very well, you know, and with the same passion and dedication that he, um, that he acted with and, and pursued his career, he put that into his parenting. So I think, um, you know, he made, he made the choices he needed to make. And I think most people don't wait that long to have a child. Um, and, and then to actually leave at the top of his game, it's risky, you know. Um, and you have two kids. I have two kids and one is here. <laughs> Carrie, his name is Carrie. Carrie, Now, the lady ladies that your father that has ever said a bad thing about you. you I, I read interviews with Irene Dunn recently, and he, she had nothing but incredible things to say. When you read, when Doris Day talks about your father, he's nothing but great things to say. It, it's his professionalism, how hilarious he was, um, how game he was when it came to improvising things. He liked to play. He liked, he liked to play. Fun. And there's a lot of improvisation in this movie. He just, he, he had, Fun. And he was like, let's do this. Because some people were like, no, what's in the script? And let's just stick to the script. He was like, let's go. That's how he was in life as well. Yeah. This morning I was listening to something, someone in, in um, makeup and hair, and, and they were doing the tongue trills of whatever they were saying. And I thought, oh gosh, I didn't do any preparation for this. You mean like vocal warm-ups? Yes, vocal warm-ups. And I thought about Dad. We used to always do things like black bugs blood, black bugs blood, black bugs blood, or those things. And I thought, I wonder if he did those warming up. You know? He just sort of threw that stuff into my life. But I wonder if as an actor, that's how he warmed up. I don't know. Some actors warm up and some actors don't. Sometimes it doesn't make a difference. Someone as brilliant as your father, I don't know if it would even matter. Because he was, you know, I went through such an obsessive state that I never let go, an obsessive phase with your father where I just watched everything. And you just go, he's gorgeous, he's hilarious. And then in Penny Serenade, which is the one we he's heartbreaking. And, oh, and Sophia Loren's another one. She just, she, when she was here being interviewed by her son, she, she spoke about your father like he was the one that got away. Like she, it was like she loved him so much. She was mad to him as yeah. well, the one that got away. <laughs> and what was the conversation you had with Sophia about? Oh my goodness, Carrie, you don't know this. <laughs> Mario, I know it. Talk to me right into this. You're old enough now, Carrie, you're gonna know. <laughs> so, before writing good stuff, um, I I called several of Dad's friends uh, to interview them, and I actually put Kirk Kerkorian on tape and Quincy Jones, and and I I got Sophia Loren's number, and I'd never met her, and I called her and had a lovely conversation with her, and she said, "Do you have children?" I said, "No, I don't," and she said, "You must, you must have children," and I said, "Well, I." I'm not prepared right now. I have a boyfriend. She said, it doesn't matter. Wow. So, Sophia Loren had had a hand carry. 
And they're the exact glasses that he wore in North by Northwest. And they're now available. All right, you tell all the people, the people that owe to me. Oh my gosh. And so you were going to, when you wrote your book, you were going to have people, you were going to interview some of your father's yes. leading ladies and friends. And you decided not to do that. I had a child. You had a child instead. Uh, well, I, I loved the interviews, but. You know, when you start a book, you never know what, how it's going to go. Well, I was telling you that Doris Day did that with her autobiography. She had she wrote about certain actors, and then she had them write a chapter about her, and all of them were positive, except for one actor, and they both wrote kind of negatively about each other. And she published it. It was awesome. Right? <laughs> I won't say who it was. It was Kurt Douglas, but. <laughs> and I'm loving everybody's responses, yeah, what's but response? what's the classic film or performer that got you to love classic films? Is there one? Classic film performer? It just, it, if there's well, like a gateway. If, if there's yeah. a gateway, I could say, um, I think Debbie Reynolds seeing uh, those great movies, and I think Ginger Rogers yeah. and Fred Astaire. <clears throat> Still to this day, if I see an old one of their dancing movies, I'm totally excited. I put it on Facebook. I'm just I want to share it. Yes, I'm so glad. I didn't know you were on Facebook. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! How old I'm behind the times apparently. I didn't know that. Uh, exactly, exactly. Well, I have to ask too. You know, you work with so many amazing women in Hollywood, whether it's it's Tippi Hedren or Joan Crawford, and it's a great Diane time. Baker. Diane Baker, exactly. Uh, you know, what's it like to, we're talking now about representation and women's voices in cinema. You know, what was it like to be working in that time with uh, being one of these titans of, of female acting? Well, I, I've shed, I've sort of shone this limelight. That's who I was. 
same area. Yeah. 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 I was a little bit wrong. I felt always they were the stars, and I was kind of like, I sort of stayed back. I never got well, excited I'll about pushing myself in NPR or public relations. I understood that. So I was around the Titans. I remember when I started producing, I asked Kate Hepburn if she would play uh, 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 in Great Expectations that I could make a sale to two-hour movie for NBC. And I remember her calling me on the phone and saying, I would, uh, you asked me to play Miss Havisham in Great Expectations if it was a remake. I would touch it with a 10-foot pole, she said to me, Diane, because Martita Hunt was brilliant in it, and I would remake, you should remake a David Lee. But these were great, great artists. I believe they were. Oh, you, they, you are as well. Sandwich and Gate Hepburn and Anna Turner, all of these were great. Well, I think that's why you're always awesome in your, the movies you make. You stand out to me, at least. I thank you so much. You're always my favorite part of anything I see. So, thank you so much for stopping. It's always great to see you. Have fun tonight. You too. Currently, he hosts the twice weekly podcast with Dennis Miller. Uh, option on Westwood One. You can also be heard on his twice daily syndicated radio feature, The Miller Minute. Uh, and most importantly, he's been a guest programmer and host at uh, Turner Classic Movies, and he's a great friend of the festival and the network. Please welcome Dennis Miller. Good morning, Paul. What a nice turnout for Ms. Rush. Nice to have you all here. You know, I just got treated to a little bit of what uh, makes a, uh, a movie star. I'm in the, the green room, and uh, yeah, the, the comely lass in the film is now the elegant lady, and she walks into the back room, and they have that unique talent. It's like a bifurcated track. They're able to fill up the room, and then lean on you and make you feel there's nobody else in the room. And I thought, that's what a movie star's about, the way. I immediately felt like... Very unique talent they have, and I don't think you can earn it as much. You can probably earn being a great actress or actor, but there's something about that uh, that factor that they just have or they don't. It has its space. We're going to talk about a 1951 film, When the Worlds Collide. We're going to talk about movies in general. This is our guest. Please welcome Barbara Rush. Stage and the photographer said, Do you have a good sign? I said, Well, Barbara does, it's full on. <laughs> no signs involved. Nice to uh, meet you, fellow Santa Barbara, and I guess. The well, it's really nice to meet you. I've, I've never met him before, and we just got on together. Like a house of fire. <laughs> house of fire, exactly. Okay. I, I have to ask you up front because we're talking about, uh, before we get to the film, I know that theater is important to you. I was reading up on you, and it blew my mind, because I always thought this was a fictional award. You are a winner of the Sarah Siddons Award. <laughs> I thought it was a plot device from all about It's in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, but there is actually a Sarah Siddons Award. We're talking to an honorary here. 
So um, let's talk about the film, and uh, we'll branch out into some other films. But what do you remember about 1951's One, One World's Collide? <laughs> well, I suppose getting into it. <laughs> because uh, I, I think it was my second film. And my first film was The Goldbergs. And I think the second film was When Worlds Collide. Mm -hmm. And uh, George Pound, who was such a lovely man, and uh, Rudy Mattei, yes. who's a director, and they were all very nice to me, and the people and so forth. But I thought, I thought the science of it was very interesting, that there's a star way out there in the sky, and they go to the astronomers, and they look there, and they realize it's getting a little bigger, and then they realize it's coming straight towards Earth. And so uh, there's a little panic. That happens. <laughs> that happens. Now what do we do? So, uh, so they build a spaceship. And uh, it, so it's about the piloting of the spaceship, the building of the spaceship, who gets on the spaceship, who gets left off the spaceship, and all that kind of thing. But I thought it was a very interesting kind of scientific picture. And, and I remember at the time we used to talk, could that ever happen? And we decided it could. And they are going to Mars. You know, and, and, and maybe we're off to another planet. I haven't missed the headlines. Is there an asteroid heading <laughs> We have to look into it. Okay. I'm following you. I you'll get me in the fence. But the thing about the film is I watched it, and it has a beautiful George Powell color to it, and you know, kind of echoes the boy of the world, but the effects are so uh, involved for back then. And it must take an amazing team of effects people, right? The thing about making films, particularly that kind of film, and uh, it, 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 you just can't imagine how many hundreds of people build these sets to make a terrain. And you just can't, you think, how, how, how did they do that? I always say that, how is that done? How, how can they do that? And so you'll realize what I'm talking about when you see, you see this film. But uh, I, as my daughter said, Mom, don't give it all away. <laughs> Don't just get the whole thing away. But I, I love working on it. Uh, and George Powell was such a, a lovely man. And Matze was a cinematographer. He was a wonderful photographer. And I worked with him later at a film in India, Harry Black and the Tiger. And um, I, he, he, he was, I think for me, I've been so lucky to work with people that taught me. Lots of people go to school to learn to act from teachers and so forth, but the real the the real thing is working with a great actor. And if you can work with a James Mason or, or a Marlon Brando or whatever you're lucky enough to work with. We've got a range war break now. I think so. <laughs> You have to ask him. <laughs> yeah, kissing is a whole other thing. <laughs> so, but any, anyway, I uh, I enjoyed making the film. I remember that. But I was so new. I was about 21, 22 years old. Yes. And so it was all new to me. I just graduated from the university in Santa Barbara, where I know you live. Yes, I know. Yes. Uh, 
they, uh, the school is in great shape. They must have an amazing uh, endowment because they're doing beautiful things with it. Well, I didn't go to that particular campus. That was uh, run by the Marines. They would, uh, really? Yeah, that was a Marine base. And uh, it, it, mine, mine was up on the hill, you know, near the Buckle Mission. Mm -hmm. Up on the hill. Sure. That's, right. Right. That, that's where I graduated. Now, when we're talking about actors, I'm intrigued. Uh, and by the way, our lead actor today is a man called uh, John Durr. And he, to me, it's a, he's a, like an amazing uh, mix of, uh, he's like a Richard Denning meets Danny Kaye. He had a bit of a Danny Kaye look at his face or something. And he's quite good and he's quite sweet. But uh, there are guys who just come around once in a while, these actors, and you, you obviously name Marlon, who uh, and Paul Dumas, a great, great actor, uh, but and good looking. Yeah, but they're, <laughs> they're guys who break the break the whole mold of what we think of acting, and that's Marlon. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I know Marlon, but it, it was different after that, wasn't it? Well, Marlon was kind of a genius actor. He just never knew what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. He was very improvisational, and so uh, uh, I, I, I I think I told you about this. I remember uh, when Ilya Kazan was doing a scene from uh, on the waterfront, and in it, Marlon was a very shy young man, and he didn't know how to talk to a woman, or he, he but he was in love with Eva Marie Saint, of course, and, uh, and so they were walking along, and he couldn't look at her, and Kazan said, "Watch what he does. Just watch what he does." And so she dropped her glove, he picked it up, and he started talking to her as the glove. And it was so touching. It was really so touching. And I always remember that the Marlon could just pick these things out of the sky and, and, and make a, a moment of it. Yes. That's what he was capable of. He's wonderful, wonderful. And there, I think of all the actors in Hollywood, he was the most respected. Mm -hmm. Now you also were shouting a little, and I believe you crossed paths with Orson. Uh, I was uh, talking about Orson Bean, and then somebody else said, uh, you said, well, I knew Orson Wells. <laughs> Orson Wells. Another genius? That right? counts. Oh, yes. Oh, a big time. You know, um, oh, this is the great one. Uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was always on the list. Number one, yeah. yeah, because he directed that. He was very young then, and then of course he did this. I married a lot of you are too, uh, too young to <laughs> know about it. But he scared the whole world, particularly the United States, by saying the the aliens were coming, and they believed it. <laughs> and so I don't know if he got into trouble for it, but but we, but everybody was scared. He got into the right kind of trouble. That's how he made his name. Yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing about Wells and Citizen Kane is, is I was uh, I was looking I always like looking at common threads just off the off the beam for one second. Joseph Cotton's in that. Joseph Cotton's in what's generally recognized as the greatest British film, The Third Man. And then Joseph Cotton's in Alfred Hitchcock's favorite Shadow of a Doubt. And he's, he's, I don't know, did you cross paths with Joe Cotton ever back then? I worked with him. Oh, you did? I worked with him on a television show oh. in New York, and I think it was, uh, we, we did, um, Victorious? Notorious. Notorious. Notorious, that's it. Well, me and my memory. I'm very old. I'm very old. <laughs> so, so I'm allowed. <laughs>
Once Invictorious was deemed victorious. I thought he, he was a lovely actor. So it was, it was a very good television yes. show of the movie. Yes. Yeah. So. Now, this film in 51, and then 1953, we have a second sci-fi film. Not showing it right now, but I just thought it was a nice, uh, a nice mention that uh, it came from outer space. Mm. And our friend wins a Golden Globe for the best of oh. I tell you, to be able to keep that vivacity from 1953 all the way through 2019, yeah. and have us look at you this morning and think, yeah, she's still the best newcomer. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm asking everybody with the 25th anniversary of TCM, you know, yeah. obviously you have, you know, the entry already, but yes. but what's your, what was your gateway into classic cinema? Was it your grandfather? Was there a, de a different... No, it was definitely my grandfather, but I started out liking musicals, so for me it was definitely Busby Berkeley. Yeah. I really wanted to be Ruby Keeler. That was, I she exactly. had this great, like... Silver, at least they look silver in the black and white. Or silver tap dancing shoes. And I bugged my mom. I, all I wanted was silver tap dancing shoes. I finally got them. I was about 15. But, um, you know, and Fred Stare and Swing Time. And I, so I really started out with musicals. Those were my favorites. And then through my grandfather, I started watching. Yeah, or sort of right, the romantic comedy. Now, like now I'm thinking of like Ileana Douglas starring musical. That would be awesome. Well, Grace of My Heart was sort That's of That's true. That's true. But yeah. there was no dancing in that. So. No. But I'm a big dancer. Everybody knows I go to dance class four days a week. That's true. That's very no. true. Where I'm not feeding my squirrels. <laughs> How are the squirrels, by the way? Fred and Ginger <laughs> are very good. Uh, you know, Ginger now eats out of my hand. Really? You yeah. tamed them? That's amazing. Yeah, she's good. Fred's a little more skittish, <laughs> but uh, Ginger is very, she always wants to come in the house. She's adorable. Well, and I have to ask, we were talking about, you and I were talking to War the other day. Yes. You know. It's so uh, funny. I know. I'm still waiting for you to star in a Marie Windsor biopic. So. Oh, yeah. That would be good. I'm waiting for it, but you know, what is it about noir for you that remains so timeless? Like that we can look at a picture and we just conjure up those images. Yeah, I guess it's you know, it's probably the same reason we all like watching Dateline, you know, that kind of dark murderous belly, yeah. A dame in trouble. Yeah. The guy's gonna help her and, you know. You know, it just has a fun, they always resolve, yeah. you know, in some way. Well, and I love what you're, the work you've been doing with female filmmakers, and yes. I got to talk to Pamela Green about Alice Guy Blaché the other day. Oh, great. What's, what's yeah. it like to be talking about representation in the classic era and bringing those women's names to life? Well, it's great because, I mean, the main thing is to get more money for the restorations, because... Yes. Once everybody sees the restoration and how great it looks, then they're like, oh, this is really cool. So, and I think, again, it's just it's just proof that, you know, women have been making, it's not like a recent thing. Yeah. You know, women were making movies 
way back to the island and getting, you know, getting more and more people aware of that. So it's not such a big deal. Yeah, it's not that revolutionary. <laughs> oh, we needed Guy to direct this movie. It's yeah. epic. Yep. You know, or a superhero thing. You go, well, you know, Grace Canard was doing superhero movies. Great, exactly. Well, Eliana, it's always so great to talk to you. Thank great you so to see much. You on of TCM's Noir Alley, the czar noir himself, Mr. Eddie Muller. Uh, I was telling this crew over here that uh, I thought I would do this one with my glasses on <laughs> since I never wear them on television because they they're not non-reflective glass, so I can't wear them. So you have no idea how hard it is to read a teleprompter without these glasses. <laughs> uh, okay, you caught me in a really good mood because I'm still on a little bit of a Jacqueline and Bissett high. <laughs> That was that was literally a dream come true to do that, and uh, maybe maybe they recorded that introduction because uh, that was about as effusive as I'm going to get. It. <laughs> and we go from that, one of my five favorite films of all time, Day for Night, to Open Secret, and I am going to tell you that I think this is the biggest single crowd of people to ever watch this movie in one place. <laughs> This is as B as B gets. <laughs> if, if, if they spent more than $2,000 on this film, I'll be amazed. Okay? That is not in any way reflective of the quality of this film, however, because as, as you know, uh, the money doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the, it's the skill and the intentions of the filmmakers and their t inherent talent that makes a movie really great, interesting, intriguing, memorable, all of these things. Uh, Open Secret, uh, I have a little bit of a relationship with this film in the sense that uh, my Film Noir Foundation several years ago started, you know, we were always looking for lost films that we can restore, and our specific thing is noir films. We leave the other stuff to the Film Foundation and UCLA, uh, but we were looking for films uh, that really were lost, and for whatever reason, a number of these films were all made by the same director, a man named John Reinhardt. And we were able to um, rescue a movie he did called The Guilty, that was an adaptation of a Cornell Woolrich short story that is really fantastic. We were able to rescue a movie called High Tide, both of those starring the legendary Don Castle. <laughs> hey, Don. Uh, but there was another movie out there, Open Secret, that Reinhardt directed just about the same time um, that we did not find, but UCLA uncovered. And having seen these two other Reinhardt movies and seen uh, how, what he could get out of nothing, uh, I'm happy to say that our colleagues at the UCLA Film and Television Archive just went right ahead and restored this movie on their own, without our help. Uh, and it's been, I love it when that happens. It costs us nothing, it's great. Uh, so John Reinhardt was a very interesting man. He is Viennese. Uh, he came to the United States uh, very early in his life. He was an actor, a writer, and a director. And he really made a mark in Hollywood 
doing working in an area of Hollywood that even TCM doesn't really know that much about because it's it, it really is lost in the 1930s the studios made foreign language versions of a lot of their films and a lot of original movies in foreign languages for markets in the United States and abroad, foreign-speaking markets. And although John Reinhardt was from Austria, he was fluent in Spanish, and he became very prolific making Spanish-language films. Uh, he went to Mexico and made a number of these movies. So his filmography is extensive, but not many people have seen a lot of that stuff because it's all in Mexico. Uh, or if it's at the Fox archive, because he did most of this at 20th Century Fox, it is buried so deeply in there that nobody has yet bothered to pull it out. So there's a whole missing part of his filmography. But in the 1940s, he was back in Hollywood and he teamed up with a screenwriter, Robert Presnell, uh, to, to create a number of these movies. This is, this is not one of them. But I believe that this movie, of which I know absolutely nothing about the producers of this film, because it is a one-off. Uh, it was made by, I believe it's Monarch Pictures, was the production company, and distributed through the short live Eagle Lion films. If, if you've watched Noir Alley, you've seen me uh, present several uh, Eagle Lion pictures, like He Walked by Night and Raw Deal and things like this. But th this is... If you think those were B-movies, oh my God. Uh, so this is 63 minutes long. I think there are a total of three sets in this movie. And, and I'm sure some of them are the same set, just repurposed by changing the furniture around a little bit. Uh, but the point of this movie is that the guys who produced it very seriously wanted to take a look in the post-World War II environment at Nazis who were in America and had not yet given up. Uh, and, and it is a very terrifying and, dare I say, still timely subject. Uh, John Ireland plays a guy who goes to this small town with his wife, played by Jane Randolph, and uh, the buddy that he's coming to see has gone missing. And very gradually, he starts to learn that there's a deep, dark secret in this small town. Uh, that is depicted rather graphically on occasion in the movie. Uh, the subject of a lot of the town's persecution, I'm not gonna give any spoilers here or anything, uh, but the guy who plays the character of Strauss uh, is an actor named George Tyne, who would himself be the victim of the blacklist just a couple of years after this and have his career taken away from this guy could not win for losing. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to say that George Tyne ended up getting his career back in the 1960s and went on to direct all sorts of television. He went from being blacklisted to directing Love American Style and all these things <laughs> on TV. So uh, it, was, it was quite a bounce back. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know about John Ireland. He, uh, he quite a successful actor in Hollywood, played a lot of character roles. Uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor the year after he made this for his role in All the King's Men, uh, married to Joanne Drew, and his voice is on a lot of movies in the 1940s as the voiceover narrator uh, without even a credit. So a lot of times if there's a, a, a very distinctive baritone voice narrating the movie, if it's not Reed Hadley, it's probably John Ireland. 
so I'm very happy to present this movie. I'm really not going to tell you much about it because it's better if it just comes as a surprise. But I do want to just give that disclaimer. If you are here thinking you're going to see Hollywood glitz and glamour, uh, you better head out right now while you have the chance because th this is as down and dirty as it got in 1948. So uh, having said that, I am thrilled to see such a big audience in the house tonight. Greatly appreciated. Uh, if you see me around the festival after this, let me know what you thought of this movie. Uh, and now, without any further ado, here it comes. Open Secret. Hi, I'm Kristen. It Hi, is, Kristen. It's an honor to get to talk to you. Oh, um, the Bad Seed's one of my favorite horror movies. So, oh, please. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, what was it like working with, with Nancy Kelly and Eileen Heckert, who are so, I mean, working along those women and, you know, you're a trio of amazing ladies well, at such a young age. I think that has to be one of the greatest actresses. Very right? unsung. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Nancy Kelly, of course, you know, was a so, huge theater actress and also a film actress when she was younger. Um, but anyway, um, I, I think during our run on Broadway was when our friendship cemented, but Eileen Heckard played the Mrs. Davis, uh, and she was more private. So she and I didn't communicate much, but Nancy Kelly and I did. And what and was I it? Kind of think she kept in character a little bit. What was way. gonna? I was gonna ask. Yeah. I mean, some of the scenes between you two are very intense. Uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what was that like to actually act them out? Oh, it's always fun. I mean, it's always fun, especially when it's clear what it's about, and you know you're on the right track. You, do you know exactly, what I'm saying? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how could it not be fun? Yeah. When I have to ask, I, I'm one of those, like when I watch the movie, I, I love your voice, the formalism and the accent that I, you kind of... I kind of imitated Nancy Kelly. Really? I was going to ask, where did wow, that come because from? because I was born in Brooklyn. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. So, although I didn't totally sound it, but... Uh, the way you say Claude Daigle is like my thing. Yeah, like I try to imitate it and I never pull it off, but... <laughs> It's amazing, yeah. and and I was curious. You you did the psychiatrist role in the remake, which I only I only watched because you were in it. Thank uh, you. <laughs> well, and what was she was wonderful. The little girl, McKenna was Grace. Yeah, Isn't she a good actress? I was gonna say, what was yeah. it like doing that very different look at nature versus nurture now? I know, I know. Well, it was it was a little campy because I got to say, you know, you remind, you remind me, me of me. myself. <laughs> so, but they they did that on purpose. Roadhouse will be Slender Forrest, a writer and film historian. She's the author of the TCM uh, movies Must See. Uh, sorry, she's the author of Turner Classic Movies Must See Sci-Fi, 50 movies that are out of this world, and the upcoming TCM book Dynamic Games: 50 Leading Ladies Who Made History. Slender will also appear as a commentary in our sister network CNN's upcoming documentary series The Movie, uh, The Movies, which kicks off this July. Uh, but before we bring Sloan up, I want to introduce Maya Montanez Smuggler, who manages the UCLA Film and Television Archives Research and Study Center. Her recent book, Liberating Hollywood, Women Directors and the Feminist, Re Feminist Reform of the 1970s American Cinema, is available from Rutgers University Press. Please welcome Maya Montanez Smuggler. Thank you. 
special nitrates bringing a roadhouse. I would like to thank our colleagues at TCM for inviting UCLA Film and Television Archive to participate in this year's festival and congratulate them on another incredible um, year. On the occasion of the screening, we especially appreciate TCM's inclusion of nitrate screenings and showing this print from our collection. UCLA would also like to thank the Box Archives for their support. The UCLA Film and Television Archive has over 350,000 motion pictures and 160,000 television programs and 27 million feet of newsreel. The archive is the second largest moving image archive in the United States at the Library of Congress and near the world's largest university-based media archive. We have over 95,000 items in our collection. Many of the items at the archive can be accessed through our Research and Study Center, um, and we uh, are welcome any researcher, scholar, student, member of the public to who are interested in the study of moving images to come and uh, check out our collection. Nitrate-based film stock was industry standard until the early 1950s due to nitrate's inherent instability and flammable qualities and the chance of deterioration and shrinkage over time. The process of preparing such a print to screen is very detailed and labor-intensive, and therefore the opportunity to see a nitrate print projected is rare. The average feature film is 10,000 feet long. Every single frame of an nitrate print must be checked. Every slice reinforced, every preparation examined. And so a big thank you to the archives collection staff for their expertise and their hard work in preparing tonight's print. And an enormous thank you to the American Cinematheque and the Egyptian Theater for their commitment to the film exhibition and making it possible for us tonight to experience the spectacularness of nitrate. And thank you all for coming. And now to introduce tonight's film.
both in front of and behind the camera. <coughs> this is my favorite character she ever played. She's Lily Stevens, this sort of gravel-throated chanteuse in a two-bit roadhouse, and she just sets the screen on fire. I mean, figuratively speaking. <laughs> it is my dream. Um, but seriously, she owns the movie. She's like, she's everything you want in a hard-boiled film noir game, right? She's tough as nails. She's sassy. She's sexy and seductive. But she also has some qualities that set her apart from the typical film noir game um, because she has courage, she has honesty, she has moral integrity, she has a heart. Imagine that. Um, she has, she even has heroism because without giving anything away for those of you who haven't seen it, she is ultimately the hero of the story. And she gets top billing over her two male co-stars. In fact, she was the driving force behind getting the film made in the first place because she owned the rights to the story, to a story called The Dark Love, which she sold to Daryl Zanuck at Fox and negotiating a sweet starring deal for herself in the film adaptation, which was Roadhouse. And this was just a small sample of the power that she was about to have in Hollywood because just a little over a year after this film was released, she um, literally became, I mean, at that time, she was literally the only female director working in the Hollywood studio system in the early 1950s. Um, so clearly she had just as much courage and integrity and toughness off the screen as you see on the screen. Um, and this is why, this is what makes her a dynamic dame, and this is what makes her an inspiration to me, and this is why we love her. In fact, I like to think that the idol of, you know, we see on the screen in this movie is pretty damn close to the real idol of, you know. And she kind of actually confirmed that once when she said, I loved playing sexy, warm dames who are tough in life, very much myself. So that's who she was in life. That's who she is on the screen in this movie. And I hope you love, as much as I love, Ida Lupino in Roadhouse. Sure, sure. I was going to say, you and I share mutual friends, Jazz. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. She's awesome. She's awesome. <laughs> well, I'm asking everybody, you know, it's 25 years of TCM, and as one of the foremost musical directors, uh, you know, what is the classic film or performer that was your gateway into classics? Gosh, if I had to pick one, it's definitely Gene Kelly. Oh, yeah. Because I'm from Pittsburgh, and he was from Pittsburgh. And I started as a dancer, he started as a dancer, he became a director. He was somebody that was very special to me in my life. And of course, that opened my, the door to for me to all the great MGM musicals. Judy Garland musicals, Fred Astaire musicals, yada yada, all the fabulous musicals of that time. And I will say, when right when I was around 13 years old, the film That's Entertainment came out. 
and that was a big deal for me because it really, you know, you couldn't see films unless you're yeah. going to a revival house or something like that. So to be able to see clips of those incredible musicals has just opened this incredible door to film great film classics and you know I, I, I really draw from the great film classics you that's do. why this means so much to me this incredible incredible place well you're introducing the sound of music yes exciting I love that you know that I, I do I do that's one of my many decisions to make uh, over the next couple of days but you know what is it about that movie that is you know so compelling all these years later it's one of the few movies I know that doesn't have a lot of extensive choreography which makes me a little irked but <laughs> that's just me so <laughs> well you know what it's a perfect translation and they did something that's almost impossible to do and that's take a, a great musical on stage and translate it seamlessly to film and actually make it better I mean by, by the incredible script by Ernest Lehman Robert Wise's direction Music work by Herbert yeah. Costell and Sal Chaplin. All the all the work, and, and, and I think everybody was at the top of their game and creating this really extraordinary film that is so beautifully acted. Julie Andrews is exquisite. Christopher Plummer is magnificent. The, all, it, all of it is just—it's just—it's it's seamless and beautiful. But I mean, the fact that you're in Salzburg, Austria, and that really is, in a way, the, one of the stars of the film is that incredible scenery and, and being in that space. I mean, it was just, it's, it's a stunning film. And I love that it's had the legs that it's had. It deserves all of that. Well, I have to ask too, you know, I'm a Disney nut and you are one of the Disney canon of directors now. What, what is that like to be That's a dream part true of it, yeah. Oh. Somebody asked me when I was, reminded me recently, they said, <laughs> you know, we were sitting around, we were kids. Um, out of college, and so you know, what's your dream job? You know, and I said directing Disney films. And so the fact that I ended up in this world doing that sort of kind of a crazy. I, I gotta, I gotta say, I envy you. So, <laughs> well, Rob, thank, thank you. you so much. Nice You've made you. some thank of you. my favorite dance moments thank in you. cinema. So, I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you for saying that. Thank nice you. to meet you. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good too. Uh, I'm asking everybody, what is the gateway for you for classic cinema, whether it's a film or a performance? What what interested you in, in classic cinema? It's it's not any one thing. It's it's it starts with sitting next to my dad and, and watching tears come down his eyes from watching a, a, an Errol Flynn sword fight. How moved he was by the brilliance of what these people were putting on the screen. You know, he turned me on. My dad is the guy that, by watching uh, William Wyler and John Ford and Howard Hawks and, and um, um, uh, you know, Capra and Preston Sturgis, he's, he's the one that planted the seed. And as I get older and more layers are either put on or taken off, I, I, I appreciate more and more what what moved him about all that and uh, how comforting it is to know that there were people who were taking all the blows yeah. and then giving back better than they got. What I have to ask, is there a favorite film for you, just in general, that's from this era that you're just dazzled by? No, because there's, there's, there's two, two, three hundred of, of movies that I would say. I mean, I would say that if I had to pick 
the best films ever, film ever made. Tied for first would be Sullivan's Travels, um, Citizen Kane, Godfather Part One, and then you know tied for second would be probably a hundred others. You don't hear many. So the Sullivan's top five, travels. the top five are probably three hundred films. I'm okay with that. The, Sullivan's Travels is amazing. That's you don't a hear. That's a that's a masterpiece. It is. Veronica Lake is my my favorite actress of all time. So you don't hear many people bring that up. So yay! I was supposed to introduce that when Robert Osborne had me on as a guest programmer, and we did it. We did the intro and the outro, and then they found out that they didn't have the rights to it quite yet. So it had to be replaced with uh, another film. Oh. But um. That's, that's, that's my first connection to TCM. Oh, well, that's awesome. And you're introducing Holiday. Holiday. Yeah. What's, <laughs> how, how's that going? Is, is there preparation for that? Be a, or just joy. going in? You know, I'm going to watch it again, and I probably haven't seen it in about nine months. It's one of those movies I watch every time it's, it's on. It's great. I just rewatched it like a month ago. But I really want to like get it under my fingernails again. Um, That's a good one. And I'm just gonna have a ball, you know, wallowing in the, the, the brilliance of of that combination that came together to make that thing. That's awesome. I'm excited for it. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great to meet you. Great to meet you. Sought after comedy minds in Hollywood. He made his directorial debut in 2018 with HBO's comedy series Barry. Barry received 13 Emmy Award nominations, including Best Series. He himself was nominated for Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Writing. In addition, he received the Producers Guild Award, two Writers Guild Awards, a British Choice Film Award, and received the Golden Globe nomination. On the film side, he has a vast array of comedy credits, as you probably know, including Trainwreck, Superbad, Pineapple Express, Chocolate Thunder, um, and then he had a dramatic role in 2014's critically acclaimed feature film, The Skelton Tonight. And he will next be seen in It, Chapter 2, the sequel, which will be released in September. So please welcome Mr. Bill Hader. Peter 
Also has one of the great horror movie costumes in this movie that, that you'll see. It just, it really, the thing just ratchets up. <laughs> and, um, but I uh, was so kind of, it was one of those great uh, TCM experiences where I've never heard of it, it starts, and I just got completely sucked into the story, and then, yeah. and then I just, I couldn't, then I was up for the next, for the rest of the night. I was like trying to find out everything I could about it, going, what was that? Insane, <laughs> I've never heard of that movie before. And, um, and uh, so this movie, well one, you guys should go YouTube the trailer for this because it is awesome. It's Peter Lorre sitting in a chair with a giant dog. And he gets a phone call, and then he's like, no. And then,